0: As I mentioned, I was with my nephew yesterday, and I learned from him that he was getting a good moral education as he had started watching Parks and Recreation, and so I felt an obligation to offer some needful instruction in the ways of Ron Swanson, because he had seen some of Ron Swanson, but he didn't know the, the, the depths and the heights and the width of his swanson And so I shared with him some of the things he wouldn't have known yet. And one of the ones he liked, and I think you might like it and you've probably heard it, but Ron in one scene is being given a medical history. The nurse at the hospital is asking him medical questions, and this has probably happened to you. And the question is put to him, Mr. Swanson, have you ever had any history of mental illness in your family. And Ron doesn't have to think long before he says, well, I do have an uncle who does yoga. (laughs) That's funny. Unless you're struggling with mental illness. Or someone in your family is right now. And you're dealing with an unquiet... Mind and a perception of reality that skews everything. And then you've got what we're trying to talk about here at Advent, this idea that we celebrate Jesus' first coming, we await his second coming, and in between there are all these promises that have not yet been fully realized. So you can see... As you drive through Fairland, the, the beautiful lights are even in this room. It's very lovely. These lights, they make you giddy with the light. You can laugh at Ron Swanson, and then you can weep at the mental illness about which he makes a joke. Both things happen at the same time. And it's one of our contentions as we go through this, this series called Waiting for gloom's dispersal. That's the position we're in. We're trying to, we're trying to have our souls enlarged as we don't f- snuff out our own sense of longing, our own sense of desire, which is the natural response for many of us as our expectations get dashed again. As things we hoped for didn't happen again, it's easy like, Marilyn Robinson's character, Lila, to say, don't want things. Stop hoping for things. But when you do that, you also become like Lila, who says, I don't trust anybody. And her soon-to-be husband says, well, then it's no wonder you're so tired. The planet can be lonely, our existence in it can be Solitary, even surrounded by people. And the things we experience can be very dismaying. Extraordinarily disheartening. And if we don't have anybody to trust, we get exhausted. And we're tempted to not hope. We're tempted to not want things. And here comes Jesus giving us a picture of what we can earnestly want without being fools. There's some things you can want which are just plain foolish. I can want to be a major league baseball player all I want. Too bad. Ain't going to happen. Maybe new heavens, new earth. Not this earth. But God wants us to have a way to hope here when we're banged up to the extent where it doesn't make sense to hope for anything anymore by giving us a bang-up expectation. And so Jesus has been in this situation where he has fed his disciples on the Sabbath for the remarkably novel reason that they were hungry. He did good to his disciples on the day of rest, and he's vilified for that. And then as they go into the synagogue, a man with a withered hand is brought to him. And Jesus, as he is wont to do upon seeing things as they're not meant to be, he pronounces healing on this withered hand on the day of God's required rest. The man is made well, his palsied hand is freed up and abled again. And so the Pharisees have a response that is perfectly reasonable when you see someone perform a remarkable miracle to take someone who was lame and make him able to walk, someone who was deaf and able to hear, someone who was blind and now able to see, someone whose hand was mangled now able to throw a fastball. They wanted to kill him. What else would you want to do? Uh, Facetiousness And then, in a classic sort of, maybe Matthew was British, understated way, we're told the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus, and Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from that place. I love it. He's clever like that. It's the kind of thing you might want to do if you know someone's plotting to kill you is don't be in that place anymore. But he couldn't stop people from following him. Sick people, that is. Troubled people. People bruised, banged up, dismayed, flickering. And he healed all their sick. And he warned them not to tell who he was. And then Matthew says, this was to fulfill this ancient picture that God had given that had now walked off the page and become personified. The embodiment of God's prediction that one day there would be a king, a king who would come, who would spread his kingdom, not by military might, not with assault rifles and tanks, but through gentleness, had actually arrived on the spot And some people wanted to kill him, and some people didn't want to leave him. And so this is what was spoken of this king who has now come. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And he will proclaim justice to the nations. This is something important we're going to come back to. And he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or tweet out. Cry out. Sorry, my bad. The Greeks' his tweet. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He will have no PR presence. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he leads justice to victory, and in his name the nations will put their hope. Matthew gives us a sort of summarized version of Isaiah 42's beginning. And the word justice in Isaiah is mentioned three different times. This, this king, this servant of God who's going to be sent to a people who labor in a thick, choking darkness, who are exiled from their homes, stuck feeling like strangers in their own skin. And he says, I'm going to have this chosen king who's going to be endowed with my power, and he's going to bring justice to the nations. And in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. And he won't falter and he won't be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. And so one of the things you might wonder is, what's the big deal about justice? Why is that so big of a concern for Jesus? Doesn't it want to save people? Didn't Jesus come to save his people from their sins? Well, that's part of it too. But why the justice? Why is he going to keep at it until justice is established over the whole earth? And that's so important that he's going to stay up late for it. And He's not going to let anything deter him. If he has to drink extra coffee, he's not going to falter and he's not going to get discouraged. He's going to bring about justice to the whole earth. Why? Is that so important? I've heard on the interwebs people talk about justice. I'm probably the only one who's heard that. Social justice. They need to be given justice. Bring him to justice. It's an important word. It's an important concept. It's It's being volleyed about all the time right now. It's because it's important. But what does it mean? Like a double rainbow. What does it mean? And see, like you, I have sort of grown up thinking that justice meant getting what you deserved. The end. And so it falls a little funny on my ears, maybe like yours, to think, why are people clamoring for justice? They want, everybody might want justice so long as it benefits them. Nobody wants the kind of justice where they actually get what they deserve, do they? I don't want justice for me because I have a resume of rottenness that's very embarrassing. I can tell you about it here that it will sound polite and it wouldn't be so shameful. I have an anger problem. Uh, I have a gentleness problem. I have a, a closed heart problem. I have a yellow... Sp- streak-up-my-back problem. I'm mean when I should be kind. I'm stingy when I should be generous. I'm I'm protective of my schedule when I should be uh, willing to be inconvenienced for the advantage of others. I'm harsh when I need to be tender. I'm just on my way of being curmudgeonly, I think. I don't want God's justice if it means Him giving me what I deserve because I don't think I deserve very much And the people who live with me can say amen if we were more charismatic, Jameson. Preach. (laughs) It hurts my feelings. All three of them. But N.T. Wright says in his inimitable way, it's an interesting thing because we tend to think of justice just in a kind of law court way. We tend to think of justice just giving somebody what they deserve. You did wrong, you get wrong. It's the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth dynamic, which was meant to limit retaliation, of course. But he says when you look at the Bible throughout the Psalms, for instance, Psalms. Our friends across the pond say it much better. When you look at the Psalms, one of the things you notice is that there's a great deal of anticipation and excitement and Christmas morning burst out of your skin excitement about God's justice, about God finally coming to judge the earth. We've seen it before. You shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth in song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap, will clap their hands. Now, why on earth would trees and hills be dancing an Irish jig in excitement for God's judgment? If it's just him rendering a verdict and giving everybody what they deserve. The reason that people in the Psalms get excited about justice, they get excited about God's judgment, about God's king finally coming to judge the earth, is because they know that it doesn't just mean getting what you deserve in the sense of if you've done wrong, now you're going to get good and punished. They know that it means that God is coming to fix the mess. He's coming to take everything that is unwell and make it well. He's taking all the things that make you want to cuss and spit and hit somebody in the nose, and he's going to fix all of that. All the things about your body that make you start wondering, what am I going to do? Why do I feel this way? Why is my mind like this? Why can't I stop worrying? Why does my elbow hurt so much? The things that make you worry about your kids, he's going to make those go away. The sense of if you're a person of color and you, you walk in certain environments and someone is just going to think bad things about you because your skin ain't the right color, that's going to go away. They're excited because they know the world's unwellness and they know when the king comes to judge, it isn't just about rendering a verdict. It's about worldwide cosmic renovation. That's why they're excited. That's why even inanimate objects are singing and skipping like calves and clapping their hands like people at a football game. So that's important to see that Isaiah's picture given by God that Matthew sees as Jesus fulfilling is this determination to bring about a comprehensive refurbishment of all the rot. A reinstatement of all that was meant to be pristine and well-ordered. About the way we deal with ourselves and each other. With God and with the earth. He's coming to fix all of that. And that's why you sing for joy. He comes to make his blessings known. Far as the curse is found far as the curse is found, that's what the judgment of God is, Him coming to judge the earth. But right now, we still stub our toes and prick our feet on the thorns that remain in the ground. This justice is comprehensive renewal. And as it works itself out in the world, there, there are different aspects of it, of course. There is a punishment aspect. Where people get what they deserve if they don't turn. It's the kind of thing that God's concerned about throughout the Bible. When you have a law court situation, you should get the same verdict. That's what justice is. Whether you're rich or poor, what you have done should be evaluated the same way. That's justice. Whether you're from the right country or the wrong country, no matter what your skin color or your gender no matter how much money you've got, no matter what your representation, if you have committed a crime, you should be treated the same way in the eyes of that just judge. So that is an aspect of justice. And it's part of why we wait right now and don't bring about retaliation ourselves because we don't even know the fit penalties for people. That's part of what we're dealing with culturally right now, isn't it? We understand full well, we understand full well that all these, this daily sort of reckoning that's happening with all this sexual wantonness of every, apparently every famous man who has ever existed does weird sexual stuff. And you just find out about it hour by hour. So we know to hate those guys, right? We know... They did something evil. They have victims who have been traumatized by what they did. They need to be believed. They need to be honored. And so now those guys should all be shot. Their livelihoods taken away forever. What happens to them? We don't know. I think people are trying to figure that out, right? We know how to denounce them, but what happens after that? What happens if there's a little boy who's bullied? Because he's not like all the other kids. An East Tennessee boy, and his video goes viral so much so that people are stirred with compassion, and he gets the kind of invitations that only a-listers get—pretty actresses and famous athletes come to my movie premiere. You're the bomb. Come visit the Vols. And he's like, no, 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 that's not really a privilege. <laughs> but then, what do you do if you discover that his mother likes a Confederate flag? <sighs> and instead. Hard, awful things about black people. Well, can you still like the kid? Should we kill his mom? Uh, It's a good thing that Isaiah's picture is that God was going to actually send somebody to help sort this stuff out. That He's going to bring justice to the earth. We can't figure it out all the way. But one thing that's hopeful is that the justice that he's going to bring has always the possibility of redemption. Any real, any real justice would have that. Some possibility of redemption. Some possibility of return, of turning around. And so it's interesting that in this bringing about of justice, we're told that his manner will not be severe. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. If you get a straw at the drive-in window for your sweet tea, and you open it and the straw breaks, you spend a lot of time trying to gently put it back together. It's a straw. You just throw it away, right? Or In my case, you throw it in the floor of the car. You're done with it. Insignificant, broken things are to be discarded. Unless you are the Messiah for whom the slightest little anguished cry is a trauma to you. This is what made the prophets so hard to be around. Because they knew that God heard the anguish of humans. When his people cry out, when people are badly treated, when they're treated unjustly, when they're not looked after. He is moved. When you look at his calling card, it doesn't say creator of the universe. It says father to the fatherless, defender of widows, setter of the lonely into families. This is a way that God likes to be introduced Over and over again throughout the scriptures, this kind of sense that when justice comes, it's not just the justice that will give you a right ruling in a law court, but it will also be giving people their rights, making sure they're treated fairly, making sure people who ain't got nobody have protections, making sure that if you're the kind of person, if something goes wrong in your life and you don't have anybody you can call that can make it better, Nobody, you don't have any friends at the top and you don't have any money to effect the change and you don't have any influence so that what you say or care about matters. Well, one thing you can be sure about in the the Bible is that it matters to God and it ought to matter to his people too. A bruised reed, a banged up soul, he's not going to toss away. He's going to gently bring it back together whether that's a reed for a shepherd's flute or a reed for measuring out things. He's not going to discard this seemingly worthless thing. You've heard about Athie Keith and Wendell Berry's story who, I love this so much, I know I've said it before. As he walks along, he pays a whole lot of attention to children and to wounded animals And the narrator's assessment of his life is, he'd always been a good man, I think. But this tenderness of his was new. It was the tenderness of a man who'd been busy all his life, but now had time to pay attention to useless things. Could you run a successful political campaign on gentleness and paying attention to useless things? I don't think so. Poor old Jesus ain't even got a gun or a knife or muscles or nothing except gentleness and the power of the sovereign Lord so that the wind and the waves obey him and sickness recedes at his command. Jesus pays attention to useless things. So if he's going to work justice, a justice where he fixes everything, where he he gives rulings that are right and he repairs what's wrong and he takes care of the seemingly useless. And what do we do about this? Two suggestions. One, if Jesus is this concerned about worldwide renovation and justice being set up, tell him regularly Where that justice ain't. If Jesus is this concerned about worldwide justice, rehabilitating the earth, then tell him regularly in your life about where that justice ain't. If you really believe, as you come to believe, That Jesus cares about useless things. He cares about political decay. He cares about health care for rich people and poor people. He cares about the victims of racism. And you know what else? He even cares about racists. He cares about the victims of crimes and those who perpetrate them. Is there a possibility of redemption? Is there any worldwide cosmic-scaled reversal that we could hope for and the scriptures say yes and so I say tell him where you see it. Where is justice not? See that doesn't ring well. Tell him where it ain't. This is permission. This is permission to present the world's unwellness and your own to God. To wrestle with him about it. To be earnest with him about it. To believe he's not going to get discouraged with you he's pledged not to falter or be discouraged until he sets this thing up over the whole world and so we're going to regularly step on these storms that aren't supposed to be investing the ground anymore so tell him about it tell him when you're a burden to yourself why am i doing this again lord will you please alter me tell him about it tell him how worried you are about your daughter About her relationships, about the unwellness within her. Tell her how worried, tell him how worried you are about your grandma, or about your friends who are not white, or about poor people you know who who don't have any health insurance. Tell them about that. And don't just tell them and say a bunch of mealy mouthed, bet hedging things like, fix this if it's your will. It's his will he will not falter or be discouraged till he sets up justice on the earth. Pray like that might mean something. You scared yet? The question is, is it his will to do it next Tuesday or in the life of the world to come? We don't know that. But we know he does stuff. And we know he cares about this. And so he invites you, tell him where it ain't. And then, relatedly, ask him, how can I, how can we, participate in this project of relieving anguish, of caring for the useless, of ameliorating sorrow? How can we participate with you in our daily jobs? in our homes and neighborhoods, on our sports teams and with our kids' friends and wherever we see it, how may we participate with you in the establishment of gentle reign of Jesus? Tell him where the justice ain't. Ask him how may we participate. I have weekend visitation rights with my car. Got it. I have it for tonight. I think I'll probably have to take it back on Monday. Spend two weeks at the shop. It's not a fair visitation schedule, but I called my guy. He's not even my guy, but he's become my guy. We talk more than my wife and I do. And I. That's a joke. And I called on Thursday after a week and his three toes and all that. I called. Max, this Brian. Hey, Brian. This is, this is Eric Youngblood with the... Uh, he, he didn't need any other explanation, he knew. With the uh, Acadia. I was just wondering, any chance you, you figured out anything about that? He said, yeah, buddy, I have. Your car is possessed. <laughs> That's what he said. And all the times I've ever spoken with a mechanic... I've never had a mechanic just give up and ascribe the car's malady to sinister spiritual forces. Your car, Y O R E, car, is possessed. And I said, Well, I knew that, but are there any other explanations? There are forces that we can't see. Hopefully, my car is not actually possessed. But I am going to have the elders with when we pray for the heater. We may anoint it. But one of the things we're asking this Jesus to do is to undo the works of the devil. Because you don't know anybody and you're not a part of any system. An economic system, a political system, an education system, a health care system, a family system. You're not a part of any system or any skin that isn't being acted on sometimes by something that's not it. And you need, we need, the nations need, governments need, and old men need and little babies need and we who are great burdens to ourselves need the God who will undo whatever possesses us, whatever imprisons us, whatever keeps us banged up and bruised and barely flickering because we have a God who is said to delight in the well-being of his servant. And so we when we come up against the unwell-being, we tell them where it is. And we say, do something about it. And then we ask for the privilege of helping it and other people. Charlotte Price, some of y'all know, the other day I was there and she had a broken vase at her house. Maybe it was a vase. She said, I think I'll just throw this thing away. And then she goes, oh, I know. I'll give it to Shaella. Shaella will take anything. no. That's Mikey. He'll eat anything. I'll give it to Shaela this broken vase. I said, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought of that. She told me this morning, I gave Shaela my broken vase. And she said, I already have an idea what I can do with it. See, she, she's an artist. And she takes broken pieces. A vase that's useless for being a vase. And the ceramic pieces are all disassembled, smashed. And she puts them together. And if you've been at Lula Lake, you see a mosaic where she makes this picture that springs from the wall. If you've been to her house and seen her countertop, she takes broken pieces of things and makes a beautiful mosaic. That's part of the accoutrement and the aesthetic of the home. We are waiting. We are expecting from a Savior Who takes broken pieces just like that. Only it's not just ceramics. And it's not just Acadia's, Although hopefully that too. But it's us. And all the ways you're banged up. And all the ways that we're unwell. And he's going to assemble something beautiful. Let's ask him to do it. Let's ask him if we can be a part. Amen.